0: Just by way of reminder, our children are dismissed to Children's Church. You can head out that door. It is for uh, grades 2 and below. And uh, I think they're ready for everybody back there. We are going to be uh, continuing our study in the book of Ezekiel. We're going to be looking at Ezekiel chapter 16. And we're going to be reading the very end of that passage and the very end of that chapter in this prophecy And so we're going to actually pick up in verse 58 and read verses 58 through to the end of the chapter. And so let's do so together now. Ezekiel chapter 16, starting in verse 58, we read these words. He's talking to the city of Jerusalem and really the nation of Israel. He says this, You have borne the penalty of your lewdness and abominations, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, I will also do with you as you have done. You have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. But then in verse 60, he says this. He says, nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed. When you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger, I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Thus, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So that you may remember and be ashamed, and never upon your mouth anymore uh, because of your humility, never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation. When I have forgiven you all that you have done, the Lord God declares. Please be seated. You know, inflation is running wild, supply and chain. Um, all over the U.S., of being disrupted for this holiday season. Racism seems to be everywhere. The president's approval ratings are at an all time low. We, we see of kidnaps and murder trials and, and crisis all over the globe. It doesn't take much time reading headlines to begin to ask the question is there any good news? We are crying out for it, and yet we don't seem to get any of it, whether we are turning on the news or reading on the Internet. In fact, the lack of good news and encouragement and any form of hope has led many of us to turn off their, their TVs, to ignore their news websites and the notifications that they get from news sources. Many of us, as we listen to the radio, as we drive in our cars, will turn away from the news as it just gives us nothing but sorrow and despair and bad news. It leads us to ask the question, is there any good news left in this world? And I have to be honest with you, often I wonder if that's the exact same thing that Israel was thinking as they were hearing these prophecies from Ezekiel in exile and Jeremiah in in the area around Jerusalem. If they were looking and hearing all this stuff and saying, is there any good news left? Is there any hope? Is there anything that that will give us uh, something to look forward to? Or is it all just woe and condemnation of sin? I have no doubt as we have been in this study for quite some time now, as we've gotten all the way to the 16th chapter, you're probably wondering that same thing. Okay, we're here again and we're in Ezekiel again. Is it just going to be more judgment and more woe and more fire and more brimstone? And to be honest, that's a pretty reasonable question, isn't it? For those of you that are joining us for the first time in this series, welcome. We've been through it. And we've heard a lot. And we are desperately longing for good news. We long for it in the scriptures, we long for it in our lives. We long for it when we turn on our TV or open up our Facebook account. But today, today I hope you can see that there is good news in this passage. In fact, in the, in the 16th chapter of the book of Ezekiel, not only is there good news, but if we really look and if we really think and we really dive into the passage, not only do we see good news, but we actually see the good news of God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. And I think that's something that we should really focus in on today. Now, as is always the case, when we have good news and when we talk about the good news of the Bible, we have to start with bad news. Because there is certainly, as you can even tell just from the small passage that we read from chapter 16 today, that there is bad news going on in chapter 16. Chapter 16 begins with accusations by the Lord God regarding Jerusalem's sinfulness. And really, if we're honest, sinfulness does not do justice to the attention that that, uh, God is giving to Jerusalem in this passage. In Ezekiel 16, God begins to graphically address the idolatrous and adulterous nature of Jerusalem. He goes at them and he pulls absolutely no punches at all. And this was on purpose. See, God is speaking through the prophet Ezekiel to the city of Jerusalem. And he's really talking to the exiles about Jerusalem because he wants them to understand just what's going on back home that has got them to this state of exile. And what he says is intended to be jarring. It was to shake them awake. They were to be shocked And appalled by what Ezekiel was saying about their head city. The city on a hill. The the great city of God. The city of David. They were supposed to be shocked and appalled and dismayed. I'll be honest with you. In fact, Dennis and I had this very conversation last night. We spend too much time in our little Christian bubbles, in our little Christian churches, not addressing the sin that goes on, not only outside of here, but in here. And everybody just wants to talk about warm fuzzy things and Jesus loves you and he's there no matter what and all those type of things and we don't talk about sin anymore. And we especially don't talk about sin in such a way that will actually shock somebody into recognizing the sin in their lives. We are a coddled church. And what we see in Scripture over and over again, whether it's from the prophet Ezekiel or even from Jesus' own mouth, he did not hesitate to shock people into paying attention. And so be alert. The Lord personifies Jerusalem, presenting her first as a rejected baby thrown out into a field. Then under the Lord's protection, she grows and thrives and ultimately is elevated to the role of queen through a marriage with God. This introduction signifies how Jerusalem began as a pagan city, but eventually became the city of David where the temple and the Ark of the Covenant would reside, a symbol of God's covenant with Israel. He describes her in this way, and yet despite God's presence... His covenant, his provision, and his blessing, Israel still turns and commits adultery by chasing after other gods. God goes so far as to call her a harlot, excuse me, a harlot who prostitutes herself out to other gods and to other nations around her. Except what she does is that she does not receive payment from them like you would expect from a harlot. But rather, she chases after them, seeking to pay them to use her as little more than a piece of meat. This is a clear reference to the alliances that that Israel and that Judah and that Jerusalem had made with surrounding nations. Hoping that maybe they would be the ones that would kind of come in and, and save them from Babylon or from other invading armies. And when they would do this, not only would they go to these people and offer them money and offer them wealth and offer them all the riches of Jerusalem and all the riches of Judea, but they would also then say, And if you do this, we'll start worshiping your gods. Saying essentially, We cannot trust that the Lord God, that Yahweh, will be the one to defend us and protect us. And so we will put our trust in you and in your gods instead. This is not new imagery in Scripture. In fact, we read about this from the prophet Hosea as well. When he says this, he says, My people consult their wooden idols and their diviners wand, and, and it informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot departing from their God. See, Israel had to acknowledge that their sin in order for the good news to be good, and that is the same for us today. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. And the first thing that we have to do if we are going to hear the good news and believe it is good news and receive the good news is we have to acknowledge that there's bad news out there. And not that there's just bad news out there, but really that there's bad news about what's in here. That we do those very things. Now, in this day and age, we want to gloss over that. We want people to tell us how wonderful we are and how blessed we are and how favored we are and that everything is good and that God loves you just the way you are and all of these things so that when we, we go to church or when we listen to whomever on YouTube or the radio, that we just go, ooh, I feel so warm and fuzzy. I just feel so loved. But we need to acknowledge something. We need to address the elephant in the room, and that is that we are sinners, and that more often than not, and I'm talking about me here, not just you, more often than not, I'm going to choose my way over God's way. I'm going to choose what benefits me over what benefits you. And I'm going to respond in anger and selfishness and a whole lot of, of other bad things that I'm going to respond godly and biblically and selflessly. See, there is a problem with me. And that problem is sin. And it's ugly and it's dirty. And if we look at what the scripture says, we need to be reminded that there is a problem in me, according to the scriptures, that should also let you know that there's probably a problem with you. In fact, let's erase the probably out of there. You have a problem. And that problem is sin. And it's not just some weird theological abstract thing like, well, I know that we've all sinned in Adam No, you sin. You sin with your thoughts and your actions, with your words and your behaviors. You sin with your priorities. And sin is a problem. And until we acknowledge that sin is a problem, then the good news cannot and will not be good news. Have I got your attention? Good, because that's what Ezekiel was doing. And see, here's the deal. Bad news, unfortunately, leads to worse news. Because when Ezekiel is talking to the city of Jerusalem and he is talking to those people, he doesn't just say, hey, there's a thin problem here. Might want to look into that. No, God says, you are an idolatrous and you are an adulterous people. And I am going to deal with it. We look at verse 38 in Ezekiel 16, and he says this, Thus I will judge you like the women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged, and I will bring you the blood of wrath and jealousy. Guys, that's bad news. In fact, what he's mentioning in that passage when he says, I will judge you like women who commit adultery and shed blood, is he's referencing to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, where it says, if there's a man who commits adultery with another, another man's wife, the one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. The Lord God declares this punishment. In fact, he even goes into detail in the passage saying that he will bring her lovers against her and that they will be the ones that ultimately expose her, tear her down, and leave her devastated. God is declaring to Jerusalem that the nations to whom they had gone and placed their hope and trust in would ultimately abandon them. Abandon the city and leave the city destroyed, exposed to raiders or animals or anything else, and ultimately completely impoverished. And guys, I want you to understand this is the reality of what sin and idolatry does in our lives. Sin always has consequences. They are not always immediate consequences, and I understand that. But sin always has consequences. And when we choose our own way and when we choose sin, 10 times out of 10, sin has consequences. It affects our relationships. It affects our mind. And ultimately, it affects our relationship with the Lord God. Sin and idolatry, temptation, all of those things, they promise us security and meaning and fulfillment. And that's exactly what Jerusalem had done when it made these, these, these uh, covenants with other cities. When they made these treaties in hope of protection, they were hoping for security. They were hoping for fulfillment. They were hoping for prosperity. And they sought after these things. But the reality is, is sin and idolatry will only deliver us betrayal and sorrow and God's wrath. Always. Always. Not most of the time, not some of the time, they will always deliver us betrayal and sorrow and God's wrath. And I want you to please understand that. It may not be immediately, but this is what we see in Scripture. And I'm sure if you think about your life, when you have gone your own way, when you have pursued your own things, when you have forsaken the way of God and chased after other things, and whatever that other thing is, it's an idol. That has ultimately left you with empty hands and an empty heart. In fact, Romans 6.23 makes it very clear what sin gives us. When it says, for the wages of sin is death. See, Ezekiel, and God through the prophet Ezekiel, was saying that very thing to Jerusalem your harlotry and your idolatry has earned you something. And that something is the death and destruction that we read about in 623. But praise be to God that the story doesn't end there. Congratulations, you have made it through the rough part of that message. And if you read all of Ezekiel 16 for yourself, which I encourage you to do, there gets a point where you start to go, whoa, God ain't playing. One of these days, I want to make a t-shirt that says that. Just says, God ain't playing. I think it'll start some good conversations. But then as we get to the passage that we're reading today, we begin to hear a change in the tone and in the timbre of God as he speaks through Ezekiel. We see it most clearly in verse 60. And In verse 60, it says this, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Guys, this is tremendously good news for the city of Jerusalem. He has gone on to describe all of their sin and all of their unfaithfulness and all of their idolatry. And he has jarred them into realizing just how far they've gone from God. And I have no doubt if he is actually saying this to the elders and to the people in exile and letting them know just how rough things are going to be. They're sitting there going, this is not a good day. And they are so beat down and discouraged. And there's a, they have, they're having that moment where they're thinking, it's all over. That God is going to have completely abandoned us. That God is going to have completely divorced us. That God is going to have completely given us all. And this is it. This is it. This is the day we find out that you think of the, the exiles of, of Judah living in Babylon. They're saying we're never going home because there's not going to be a home. This is it. He's telling us that it's over. And then suddenly God speaks into all that, and he says, nevertheless, I haven't forgotten you. I haven't forgotten the covenant. I haven't forgotten who you are. And guys, I don't know where you are, but that's good news. In fact, that's good news for wherever you are. Because wherever you are in your walk with God today, I want you to hear this. God has not abandoned you. God has not completely divorced you away from him. God has not forsaken you. And you are not on your own. In fact, what we see from the passage is the best news, and it's the best news for you too, is that he says, nevertheless, I will remember. Remember. And God remembers you. And he remembers the covenant that he has made. If we think about this for even just a moment, we recognize the fact that God has every right and every reason to abandon us. He had every right and he had every reason to abandon Jerusalem. He had every right and every reason to abandon all of Israel. And yet, his amazing, unbelievable love, grace, and mercy calls them to remember the promise. And calls him to remember the promise that he made and to act in their favor. All of the harlotry, all of the the waywardness, all of the idolatry. Their entire culture was synonymous with adultery. And yet he says, but I remember. And I'm going to do something. And I'm not going to just do the old thing over again. I'm going to do something new. I'm going to create a new covenant with you. In fact, not just a new covenant, but an everlasting covenant. One that will never be broken. One that you can't break. I'm going to take care of you, and I'm going to take care of this. God's overwhelming love and grace would finally lead Israel to humble themselves before the God of all creation. And in doing so, they would receive a full pardon for their sin. Look again at verses 62 and 63. He says, thus I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation. When I have forgiven you for all that you have done, the Lord God declares. See, God is going to step in and he is going to forgive them of their sin. And they are going to recognize just how good God is. Because even in their current state, he still loves them. This forgiveness came ultimately through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. In fact, Paul makes this very clear in 1 Timothy 1.15 when he says, It is a trustworthy statement receiving full, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I'm the foremost of all. When God talks of this covenant, he is pointing them to Jesus. And he is saying, your sins are going to be forgiven, but make no mistake, your sins are going to be dealt with. But instead of Israel and Jerusalem dealing with their sins, he would send one to take their place, and that one is Jesus Christ. Jesus himself spoke of this forgiveness and this new covenant when he did the Lord's Supper among his disciples. Luke 22, starting in verse 19, says this, It says, when he had taken the bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And at the same time, he took the cup. And after they had eaten, and he said, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. See, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And Jesus was establishing the new covenant that we read about here in Ezekiel. Now, sin was going to be forgiven, make no mistake. But also, make no mistake, sin was also paid for. Because that is why Christ went to the cross. So that our sins and our idolatry and our adulterous nature would ultimately be nailed to Christ on the cross. So that we might have a new covenant, an everlasting covenant in Christ this leads us to the best news. You may say, how could there possibly be better news than that? But let me tell you what the best news is. See, this new covenant was not just for Israel. It was not just for Jerusalem. See, that's what they were kind of thinking about. Obviously, the elders of Judah that were in exile and even the people of Jerusalem that that still had hopes that there would one day be this kingdom. They were still hoping that there would be this covenant and there would be this restoration of Israel. Israel, And yet, there's more to it than that. In fact, go back in the chapter just a little bit and look at verse 55. And during this passage and this whole section of this paragraph in your Bible, he begins to talk about these sisters of Jerusalem. And he mentions them in 55 most clearly. He says, you sisters Sodom, your sister Sodom and her daughters and Samaria and her daughters will return to their former state. And you with your daughters will also return to your former state. This is a, a weird kind of segue when he begins to talk about these other places and, and kind of how, just how sinful that Jerusalem is. And, and I want you to understand this about Sodom and Samaria. See, Sodom and Samaria were basically synonymous with idolatry and sin. When the people of Jerusalem, when they said, what is the worst place ever in existence? The first thing they would have said is Sodom. Sodom was the worst place ever in existence. They practiced all sorts of lewdness. They were completely overrun by sin. They were so bad that God ultimately completely destroyed and annihilated Sodom. Sodom is the worst city ever. And in this passage, God says, okay, Sodom's the worst city ever. You're worse than Sodom. Your idolatry and your sinfulness and your lewdness and your adulterous nature makes you worse than Sodom because you've been at it longer than them. They may have said, well, what's the second worst city? They'd say, oh, that's easy. The second worst city throughout all of history was Samaria. Now, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. And when the kingdoms divided and the the ten tribes took the northern kingdom, they they founded their capital in Samaria, and the king at that time said, Hey, I don't want my people going back to Jerusalem to worship God, so I'm going to make my own stuff. And he built a golden calf, like in the days of Moses. And he called the people to worship in Samaria instead of Jerusalem, and idolatry began to run wild throughout the northern kingdom of Israel. And so they said, clearly, Samaria is the second worst city of all time because they, the moment it was founded, it was all about idolatry and all about worshiping false gods and all about denying Yahweh and the temple and the tabernacle and the covenant. And it was, all, it was the worst place ever. And he says, guess what? You're worse than Samaria. Because the idolatry that is in Jerusalem at this time far exceeds than anything I ever allowed in Samaria ever. Again, Jarring. And he says, These people, if I'm going to show mercy to you and I'm going to show grace to you, then I'm also going to show mercy and grace to the people who represent Sodom and Samaria. Ultimately, Sodom and Samaria represent first in Sodom, the Gentiles, and Samaria, obviously the Samaritans. And when God begins to speak of how He is not only going to show grace to Jerusalem, but He is also going to show grace and even restoration to Sodom and Samaria, He is indicating that His mercy and His grace is going out to all the world. See, the good news of the gospel is not just that Jesus came to save the Jews. It wasn't that Jesus was coming to save Jerusalem, but rather that Jesus was coming to save the entire world from their sin. And in case you haven't done the math, that means us. There's not any Jewish blood that I'm aware of in my family. I have no claim to a tribe of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel would view me as a Gentile, But praise be to God. He sent his one and only son not to save Israel from their sins but to save the world. Jesus called his followers to make disciples of all nations. Not just to Judea, not just to Galilee, not even just to Samaria, but to all nations, because the offer of forgiveness and covenant with God was now going to be extended to all nations. Paul wanted to make this abundantly clear when he wrote to the church in Rome when he said these words He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, but also to the Greek. In the midst of all of this woe, we're reminded that God had a plan. And God's plan was not ultimately just to restore and to bring Israel back into a right relationship with him. But God's plan was to bring all of creation back to him. Now, you may ask yourself today, how do we receive this good news? And the answer is very simple. It is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear. It says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not about church attendance, is it? It's not about being good, praise the Lord. It's not about having the right words or dressing the right way or voting for the right political party. It's about believing that Jesus was exactly who he said he was, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross for our sins, and that he rose from the grave three days later. And if you will believe that with your mouth, or believe that with your heart, sorry. If you will believe that with your heart, and you will confess with your mouth, you will you will take into a- action and say, I am declaring today, I am confessing, Jesus is Lord, that I will follow him the days of my life. The Bible says we'll be saved. And when we are saved, we will receive the Holy Spirit. And when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we become his. And that covenant, that everlasting covenant will be ours. Not just today. Not just till you mess up again. But until you go and be with the Lord and you see Jesus face to face. Is there good news in Ezekiel? Absolutely. Can you see it? And will you receive it? Let's pray together. Our gracious God and King, Lord, we do praise you for your love and for your grace. God, we stand in awe. Because God, really, we're reminded by, by Ezekiel and by the actions of, of Israel and Jerusalem, Lord, that, that we don't deserve to be in a right relationship with you. Lord, we don't deserve to be in covenant with you. Lord, we don't deserve the promises of Scripture, but you You loved us so much that you did these things. You are so good and so gracious that you have done these things. God, it is my hope and my prayer, Lord, that everyone in this room will see, hear the good news. And Lord, that they will receive this good news. Lord, I pray that there's not a single person here that will walk out of this room today still wondering if they have a relationship with you, still wondering if they are good with you, still wondering if they have a hope in a future with you. But God, I pray that all of us here will believe and will surrender their lives to Christ. Lord, that they will be in covenant with you because they will feel and know and hear and believe that you have accomplished your work and that you've done that through Christ Jesus. God, we praise you for good news, even in the midst of so much bad. And God, I pray that everyone here will put that good news in their heart. God, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.